0: Welcome to Cyberbytes, the podcast. I'm Oliver Legg, co-founder of Aspirant Search, and today welcome Richard Bird, Chief Security Officer at Traceable. Richard tells his story of how a bottle of tequila led to an incredible career in tech, then cyber, and we cover some important, but not broadly talked about topics around how the role of the CISO has changed in recent years. Enjoy the show. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Good stuff. I... Uh... I should have said in that intro as well that you're known as being the the king of the metaphor within uh, the cybersecurity space. So I hope you'll be uh, be dropping a few on us on uh, on this call.
1: You never know; they just seem to fly out of the top of my head. Um, I always I always kind of phrase it this way when I'm public speaking. Um, I I say it's kind of like uh, NASCAR. People come to see me speak because they're convinced that I'm either going to crash and burn or I'm going to take the checkered flag and win um and and i think it's usually a 50 50 actually i think a lot of people show up and they go i hope he crashes and burns and he still wins um because not every metaphor works uh but
0: uh but they do just seem to kind of jump out of the top of my head yeah well you've kicked off with one about nascar already so keep uh <laughs> keep them coming um well no great to great to have you here i know you're you're pretty much fresh off a plane from the uh the guide point event over in uh in las vegas and Interesting enough, saw you uh, dressed up as Ricky Bobby. So, what was the uh, what was the story behind that on stage? Wow, oh, when the opportunity came up, the the the
1: actual event at uh, the GuidePoint um, Company kickoff was uh, a tiger cage, uh, which I thought was an interesting premise. The the octagon. Um, they they picked a couple of uh, new innovation uh, providers in the security solution space. Uh, to get up and give a presentation and um, speed round, like eight minutes or so, and then six minutes of questions. And um, I I feel bad because I have an unfair advantage. I I think at last count in the last six years, I've spoken some 500 times. Um, And when you have that kind of of level of practice, uh, it makes it kind of of easy to jump into a challenge like that. But um, I also know the audience uh, at Point. Matter of fact, I have many, many friends there. Um, and I knew that um, they would have a, a a shared appreciation for my love of lowbrow humor, and um, it, the only trick for me was figuring out how to put uh, this Ricky Bobby uh, jersey and you know the other pieces for the event underneath multiple layers of clothes. Um, you know, I had a blazer on and I was actually taking things off um, and not and not die from heat exhaustion uh, in the hour and a half before it took to get on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I successfully navigated that challenge. Um, but yeah, it was really, I think a lot of this comes back to, uh, kind of mentoring and guidance that I share with people that say, I'd love to do what you do for a living. I'd love to go and just talk to people. And I'm like, it's more than talking to people. There's preparation, there's understanding your audience. Um, and most importantly, and I think, you know, for something like Talladega Nights, um, and, and Ricky Bobby and all of the characters in that film, um, there's there's this need in security and technology uh, for us to do a better job to connect with our audiences emotionally. And mm-hmm. once you have an emotional connection, you can really talk about you know any you know layer and depth of of technology and engineering that you want to. Uh, but when people become personally invested in a conversation that means something to them, um, and a lot of people know if you ain't first, you're last from you know Talladega Nights, and that's a connection point. Um, you end up with a much more uh enjoyable uh interaction with folks um and i am prou- proud to say that um and it's not just me i just get a chance to hold the microphone i am proud to say that um traceable did win uh the uh, uh the competition in that tiger cage by a substantial margin uh, there was live voting on the floor um and uh and, and that's exactly what i was hoping for for an outcome
0: yeah awesome well hopefully you can uh, take some credit for it um <laughs> It's interesting that you said uh, so many people come up to you and say that they would love to do what you do and fly around, talk to people, do the public speaking events. But the other thing they probably forget to realize is that in order to get to that position is that you've got a huge wealth of experience in a multitude of different industries and security areas. So I think that's a... A kind of nice way to transition into into your background and kind of really going back to how how did it all begin for Richard how did you get into security initially and then how did your career evolve to where you are today
1: yeah Uh, you know my career is nothing more than um, a wonderful series of serendipitous events Um, I don't believe in luck but I believe fully in serendipity and I love the Webster's Dictionary definition for serendipity, um, discovering something that you are not searching for. And I think serendipity offers up an opportunity as well for a choice in the moment. And I've had a lot of people in my career that saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, going all the way back to how I got into technology to begin with. I was a construction project manager um, after I came out of the United States Army, and Um, My late wife was working uh, for a technology company and uh, in the middle 90s and we went to a Christmas party and there was a gentleman there who's now a lifelong friend and mentor uh, who uh, pulled frozen tequila out of his freezer and uh, we did shots and he said, if you can manage a um, Walmart store construction project, you can manage a mainframe migration. And I didn't know the difference between a mainframe and a toaster oven at that point. Um, I still, I still rib him about it. Um, that only tequila makes that conversation make sense. But um, it, it really was a starting point for me. And I, I always like to tell people like there are opportunities in your life where you unexpectedly find out what you are naturally good at, um, particularly if you're willing to exercise intellectual curiosity not get complacent or get um, satisfied with where you're at, but are always curious, always asking questions, always trying to find new ways. And most importantly for me, constantly raising your hand and volunteering for stuff that other people wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Um, The real hallmark for my entire technology career has nothing to do with any of the stuff that I do today. It has to do with um, when I was working for a payment processing company, the company that I was actually hired into that I mentioned, um, there were a bunch of people sitting around the room one day in in a product meeting, and a person came in and said, look, uh, we have a company that is not a bank, uh, 128-bit encryption. Um, they have no, uh, no regulatory financial requirements or backing around doing payments. And they're on the internet. And who wants that project? And everybody that was in that room was used to the way the banking and payment structures had already you know, existed for you know, multiple decades. And I said, I'll do it. And it turned out to be Yahoo BillPay. Um, And then I did AOL bill pay. And then I did, so I did the very beginnings of, of internet payments by accident, simply because I wasn't afraid to say, let's jump into this thing. Now, you know, flash forward, um, IT ops career was, was fantastic. I became a CIO, uh, but then uh, an opportunity came to join early beginnings of centralized information security at JPMorgan Chase. Again, another person that saw something in me, I didn't see in myself uh, fantastic, uh, resource, uh, Amy Geiger, who's at Accenture now is now a lifelong friend and mentor of mine. And she just said, I need somebody that can, you know, do identity. Um, what I, what she didn't tell me was, is because nobody else wanted the job. Um, so once again, I didn't volunteer for that when I was voluntold. Did you volunteer after
0: another, uh, frozen <laughs> bottle of tequila or was, yeah, it another- was this a sober decision? <laughs>
1: yeah. Another tequila, um, and, uh, and that led into what became the monster, you know, uh, experience in my career, which was global head of identity for J.P. Morgan Chase's consumer business, which is, you know, uh, this is a long circuitous route to get to the question, to the point of the question that you asked, which was um, in, in accumulating all of that experience. And then finally, uh, making a personal decision that I'd reached my bridge of unacceptable compromises, which was dealing with corporate politics for another, you know, year or 10 um, after 20 years of being in the corporate side, I decided that I wanted to step out and do some advising and advising led to accidentally to solutions. Uh, Andre Duran at paying identity called me up and said, I saw you speak, come work for me again, serendipity. Um, but the, the one thing that I'd like to share with people like this, this is the arc that my career took. Um, and it, it landed me squarely in this very interesting, um, space and the type of job that a lot of people are very, very interested in. Everybody that I know that does the kind of work that I do, um, and, and once you start to do this work, you get to circulate with lots of people with this kind of a job. Everybody that I know is a 30-year overnight sensation in the making. Yeah. Every one of those folks have spent years, decades, um, working in as you mentioned multiple security disciplines and multiple organizations um, and it's um it, it takes it it takes not just accumulating those 20 or 30 years of experience it takes once you get into this kind of role forgetting all of the ego part of those accomplishments for all of those years because the one thing that a market hates is an expert that's a know-it-all Right. We 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 are always aggressive at tearing down our heroes. Um, and so you have to be able to enter into these roles and park all of that experience, all of the I've seen that before all of the um, you, you don't want to do it that way. <laughs> um, you have to park all of that immediate corporate type of experience response that you want to give and realize that, the, that you're there to help people. You're there to help people and make their jobs easier, not harder. And that's a very difficult switch for people to to change moving into these types of roles. That's where you see people succeed and fail um, in these field evangelist market facing type positions um, because the test becomes, um, are you somebody that people are actually interested in or are you somebody that is just espousing all of the amazing stuff that they know Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 that really is the demarcation line at success or failure uh, in these positions. Mm.
0: And I mean, it's it's similar to a consulting role, really, in the fact that you're you're getting in front of so many different businesses at so many different stages in their their security maturity. And I guess it's that that ability to realise that the conversation yesterday is potentially completely irrelevant to the conversation that you're sitting in today. Um, and how do you adapt to that? um what what else is different between the the enterprise security world and vendorland as a as as a kind of security practitioner anyway
1: yeah the enterprise security world is is defined in in one word atrophy um you know the it, and it's not i'm not using it as a criticism or a, a negative statement what i'm saying is is that after nearly 40ish years of the development of security as a discipline in the enterprise setting and frankly, technology writ large as well. Um, we've, we've entered this age, I like to call it in security, the cybersecurity industrial complex. Um, we've entered this age where there have been landed and entrenched budgets, uh, developments and growth of, of massive numbers of staff, uh, and employees with subject matter and domain expert, uh, knowledge. Um, and, and what, what has that resulted in? It's resulted in an atrophication of our security approaches because we can't be agile anymore in in the enterprise space. We can't be flexible. Um, every conversation with any innovative, you know, security solution provider is is can you integrate to these twenty seven things that we're not going to get rid of? Mm-hmm. Um, and and because of the the way that we've built these, um, this is a laden term, but monolithic. Um, security architectures, they are very difficult to change. So um, I asked a question probably last year on LinkedIn in a survey, and I said, if a brand new threat manifested and there was a solution provider that could mitigate the risk or threat of that brand new threat that you've discovered, how long would it take your company to make a decision and a choice to purchase what was necessary and implement it? Um, And I think about 25% of the group said like six months. And then another 50% said six months to two years. And then the remainder said never. (laughs) And I was like, well, I really appreciate the honesty for the most part in those responses, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's reflective of the friction uh, and the challenge that you have, the lack of, of the inertia that you have in the corporate side. Solution side, like... The solution side is 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 just as easy to frame up as why it's different um the solution side i am continuously shocked Um, and this is not a statement about traceable traceable obviously i'm on staff and hopefully our perspective is different Um, but um, i am consistently shocked by security solution creators innovators who have no idea the actual business problem that they're solving for a customer Mm -hmm. Um, they've never sat in the seat they've never managed to function They make an assumption based upon a market opportunity, typically, right? And here, this is unserved or this is greenfield, and then you have a bunch of investors that go, "Wow, sounds great! We can make a ton of money off of that." Mm -hmm. Um, But then, when you start having conversations with those solution providers in a enterprise operations context, you know they go, "Okay, well, we can do this," and as a as a you know somebody working in an, you know, an atrophied, you know, uh, organization filled with inertia, you go, yeah, but that's not actually how we'd use it. Like we wouldn't, like we would never actually take a direct feed of this information from your solution and make a decision. We would take that feed and then use it to feed Splunk to provide all of the blinky lights for everything else that we do. And then we'd do something with it. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that lack of understanding of the business problems is where we continuously see this, um, ships passing each other in the night problem where security solution providers are out there waving the flag going, if you had bought this, you wouldn't have suffered this breach and then you have people like me that are going, that is the stupidest thing that a security solutions provider could ever say, because you have no perspective about what that extended landscape inside of that customer looks like. Mm-hmm. And your solution may have solved this particular piece, but downstream and the overall process and transaction flows, it would have had no relevance or bearing and it wouldn't have saved that customer from anything. And now you just like, forgive my language, but now you just look like a jackass because you're your ambulance chasing as a marketing technique, which yeah. obviously is a very problematic uh, issue within the solution side as well.
0: Well, um, there's been agree- some right. pretty key events over the last couple of years. Um, one that immediately springs to mind um, in the last 12 months that yeah, there's some vendors that I think have shot themselves in the foot a bit in terms of respect across the industry for how they have yeah, ambulance chased uh, certain events. Um, but it, it's an interesting point because I mean, our, our like what what we do as a business is we're staffing cybersecurity vendors, and when you look at, I mean, our sweet spot is kind of early to to growth stage, very little public or 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 kind of post IPO businesses, and the vast majority of them are their go to market sales marketing that have just always come from a sales background or a sales engineering or a customer success background. Um, you then got. The software engineers that really can come from anywhere um and then maybe one or two folk who have come from an actual practitioner background um and i had i had a a, a, a harshel the ceo and founder of uh tromzo uh, if you're aware of those guys on a few weeks ago and he he was saying that there's a surprisingly low number of successful Ex security leaders or CISOs turned successful security founders. So yeah, it ties in with the the kind of gap that you're you're, you're talking about.
1: Well, there's a there's a very obvious reason for the lack of success, mm-hmm. and this is um, so two parts to this. First is is that I worry very much that the cybersecurity ecosystem is is badly damaged. Um, and it, it could be badly damaged because of the messaging of ambulance chasing it'd be badly damaged. Because one of the things that I say frequently is, is, you know, when I get pushback from a colleague or a friend that's still on the corporate side, and they go, well, that's just fear, uncertainty and doubt, you're selling FUD. And, and my response is, is you're not afraid. You're not afraid, right? You In today's environment, you're telling me that fear, uncertainty and doubt has no place. In in our thinking and our decision making, and I'm like, you're being untruthful. You're being disingenuous, right? Because if you're not afraid, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. However, you know, because of this kind of weird uh, reality that we have in a in a market where solutions providers are not on the same sheet of page with the with the enterprise space, um, what I find is is that as security practitioners um, join companies like I have where they found companies in the security side, um, they run into two very, very specific problems. The first is is that many times, and this isn't just isolated to security practitioners. It's also very, very smart, um, innovative uh, technology founders. Mm -hmm. Um, They think smart is enough. Smart is not enough. Like you can have the smartest solution. You can have the most technically you know, amazing solution on the planet. And there is zero guarantee of success Mm -hmm. um, because smart is only a component of it. And the second is, is that if you come from practitioner's background, if you come from corporate or enterprise, and this is one of the points that I say frequently, people go, I would like to have a job like you. I was very, very fortunate. I grew up in a family business. Um, I grew up in a family business that was predicated on selling um, from the time I was 12 years old. So I learned what it meant to be a seller. I've never wanted to be one. However, when you get into these types of roles and you are under the misconception that your job is to, um, sound smart or produce smart things, but not sell anything,
0: Mm.
1: then you will fail in these positions. Um, and, and a lot of people, they feel that selling is beneath them. That not necessarily a a conscious decision it is a subconscious decision in many cases for people and they think that selling is is beneath them and uh, i was very fortunate my dad you know really successful small business person on his own Um, he said when i was probably 14 or 15 years old you need to understand every job you'll have in your life is marketing and sales I understand that dynamic. I do not have that reflexive response when somebody asks me to go talk to a customer and do something as disgusting as say, would you consider you know, bringing Traceable on board, um, not having problems with that? In many cases, people who come out of structured corporate roles or who come out of very, very um, interesting expert roles in our practitioner population, they can't change that gear. And that is why they do struggle and
0: and frequently fail in those kind of roles. Mm, well, the products, their baby, and they expect to get the calls asking for it. I guess rather than uh, realizing the the stuff that goes on the background to uh, to get those signatures. Um, yep. And I, I I was reading a blog, and we we spoke about this a few weeks ago. But there was a a blog that you commented on around the the lost opportunity that enterprise businesses. Are massively missing out on by having poor security, and I think we talked about the. I think it was the T-Mobile um, breach, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's an interesting one because a lot of people see well breach, loss of loss of revenue, downtime, potential brand brand damage. But what what do you mean by lost opportunity when you you talk about that?
1: Well, I what I mean is. Um a return to really the core principles of business uh, that have guided capitalistic society for centuries, right? Which is, um, we used to do business with who we trusted. Mm -hmm. And when the digital age really boomed, we lost a focus on trust and stewardship. And uh, it happened without us even knowing it. Right. it Everything became this cool Harry Potter, you know, Hogwarts school of technical wizardry. Look what we can do. Let's go make this. Let's go do that. Like, um, you know, even back to my days, you know, I- Internet bill payment. Like, that's dumb. Who would want to do that? Now, now you're real forward, you know, 25 plus years and you're like, uh, when was the last time you wrote a check? Right. Like this is these are the kind of, of massive changes that happen even with you know kind of big bubble escalations they really happen to us incrementally um, over time and then all of a sudden we wake up in the morning 25 years later and we go oh another breach another hack all my data gone um you know now, now the you know the big news about you know the the mother of all breaches The aggregation of all of this personal data that has been stolen from multiple breaches and exploits now aggregated into a single file. And uh and and we're just I think that we're inappropriately shocked. Like the way that I like to phrase it is, what did you think the bad guys were gonna do with all this data? Why why would you be shocked that there manifested this, you know, this Moab event Mm -hmm. of, of this massive amount of data about all of us? when all you had to do is look at what's been happening for year upon year upon year, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I talk about when it comes to this using security, um, you know, as a as an opportunity, uh, it is going back to trust. Um, and, and I always phrase it this way. I mean, you, you might have an answer to this personally. Who in your digital world do you actually trust? All of your digital relationships. You got anybody?
0: Personally.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I I trust I will tell you, I trust one singularly, and it's my banking relationship. Um, mm-hmm. and I and the reason is it's not just because that organization um, has what I believe is some of the best security in banking at large, and I'm not going to name names. Uh, mm-hmm. but I've been a customer of theirs for 32 years, right? And um, and time something has kind of happened to turn my head as a consumer, I say, oh, that would be interesting. I actually default back to, but do I trust them? Right? Mm-hmm. Do I trust them with my data? And uh, so, what I think we're going to see, especially with the advent of um, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau here in the states, the focus on open banking—you um, know—which is actually following, you know, very slowly behind other places in the world where it's been rolled out—we're mm-hmm. um, starting to see organizations like the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau flex and say, you have an obligation to your customers to restore trust and faith. You have an obligation to be a good steward. Good stewardship is a word that's been entirely lost in the business world. Um, you know, I gave you my data because I wanted to be a customer of yours. I didn't give you my data so that when I push unsubscribe on the email list, you go sell my email address to 20 different data aggregators, right? That's poor stewardship. And I think that we need to look at, this goes way beyond reputational, right? We need to look at what does it take to restore faith in my customer base, in, in me as a company. And the reality is, is that if you're a trusted company, like right now, if you had a choice between any of the digital channels and outlets that you used and you had one of those digital providers, say an Apple who's actually been doing some of this lately, messaging that if you do business with us, you will be safer and your data will be more secure and we respect your privacy. Mm-hmm. Which one are you going to go with in today's day and age? I already know the answer to that because I already know what all the surveys say. I already know what Apple you know, shared when, it, when they gave the opportunity for you to turn off tracking at the application level um, and, and what we saw consumers do. Consumers are dying and thirsty a trusted relationship with a good steward and that is the
0: opportunity that we're missing Mm, yeah yeah awesome and you said earlier about when talking about kind of security practitioners um essentially saying well why why aren't you scared why aren't you conscious and nervous of what's going on and i think there's two there's two parts to that with some things that have happened over the last kind of what, 18 months, two years, um, and some pretty, pretty high profile cases as well. But there's the, the impact of the breach itself, but then there's the actual, the personal impact that has now come into play with security leaders roles. Um, and obviously the, the case we're referring to is Uber and and, and Joe Sullivan. Um, yep. And, it would be interesting to hear from your perspective how how you feel the role of the CISO, that top seat um, in large enterprises that have boards, they have a C-suite. How, how has that changed in your perspective?
1: Well, I think the Sullivan case in particular, but the SolarWinds case as well, is drawing attention to a really deep, dark secret um, that that a lot of companies have kind of buried uh, from the general public, that now is becoming clear was was a bad choice to begin with. Which is the old argument of who the CISO should report to, and and what I'm seeing now it it isn't just who the CISO should report to. It was always the argument as a CIO, CTO, general counsel, you know, so on and so forth. But nobody ever really addressed the elephant in the room, which is why is that CISO actually not a functional member of the C staff. Mm -hmm. right we get these cool c titles right but we do not get a seat at the c level staff table um you know when you're when you're a one down from a cio from a general counsel those folks have a seat at the table Mm -hmm. you are on the outside looking in um and uh with the sec breach reporting uh changes with uh, you know, everything that, you know, uh, you know, Uber and SolarWinds is going through relative to the DOJ and the SEC, um, it is drawing some really strong attention to the fact that, look, you, you know, you're going after a guy like Joe and Joe didn't sit at the sea level like Joe was providing information to a host of people who were making decisions based upon that information and business priorities and funding and so on and so forth. So when somebody made a decision to say, uh, well, look, um, we're not going to disclose that. I, I can almost guarantee you that none of the actors that are on the CISO side of the equation were going, uh, my recommendation is we don't disclose that. <laughs> they, they were saying, here's the information I'm sharing. We need to make a collective decision as a team. And now when that collective decision as a team is being made with all of the, you know, uh, you know, all of the insurance, the DIO insurance and everything else that's covering that C-staff, mm-hmm. those decisions are being made in that C-staff, you know, boardroom or on the risk committee of the board. And then the CISO is left hung out to dry. Um, that That's going to yield two things, right? Either it, the one thing that it's going to yield is a change in that overall structure because of the way that the feds are going after Um, you know, CISOs or breach reporting or name your laundry list, right? And the CISO or CSO level will be elevated to a seat of importance within the C-suite. Or people won't want to be CISOs or CSOs anymore. Um, Nobody's going to want to take on that kind of personal uh, risk and accountability when much of what we do as CISOs is a team sport, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't I never as a CISO made a unilateral decision about whether or not we were going to accept a risk I had to have my chief risk officer involved I had to have my general counsel involved I had to have you know a laundry list of people that were a participant in that decision making my head of audit I had to have them making that decision together like if that collective group makes a bad decision and the answer is is that the CISO gets taken out to a shallow grave in a cornfield and buried. Then, then all of that internal trust necessary for a company to be successful is going to just it, it disappear. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to have highly dysfunctional organizations because nobody's going to want to take accountability for those types of roles.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's when really they're you'd hope not doing anything illegal um, in their role. And they're constantly having to look over their shoulder that they might get sent to jail. Um, all it's doing is taking away the impact, the positive impact that their role should be having on the business and the wider industry. So it's yep. it's crazy.
1: Well, I look. You don't get look. There's good. There's always the opportunity for a wild card. Like we, mm-hmm. We've had we've had people that worked in the U.S. government that have sold out U.S. interests. Uh, we've had stuff that's come down the pike with you know, WikiLeaks and any number of things. There's always going to be the potential for a bad actor. Um, mm-hmm. but, but when you look at it on a, you know, just a standard scale of probabilities, you don't become a CISO and go through uh, you know, the entire process and gaining of experience in the security space without having a particular type of personality. Um, and that type of personality is not inclined, typically, always can be exceptions, not inclined to be making poor, poorly informed ethical and moral decisions about what to do about security. Mm-hmm. It just is not the way that we're built. Um, now we might be built half a cop and half a bad guy. I actually think those are the best security practitioners because we have to think like the enemy, right? but but by and large, I have never, met a a senior level security person that I would go, man, that person's got some serious ethical you know deficiencies, and maybe we should you know think twice about their their uh, you know their thoughts or their opinions or observations. Mm-hmm. It just isn't the way that this function um, has developed and evolved. And that makes it even more problematic because I know I've been on the receiving end of, you know, we need to, I, I did a, a, a very deep analysis at one point in my corporate career and said years before it manifests as a problem look we need to do something about the risk of ransomware and the response was we do not have enough money we do not have discretionary budget we need you to continue to focus on the pillars of your security program but we're not going to address this problem and a year and a half after i left that company they got popped with ransomware <laughs> um and and so that you know the the uh the mechanics of this role um are always going to be you know up against that we don't have the budget we don't have the you know we don't have a priority interest in that from a risk appetite standpoint it doesn't mean that what we contribute is is worthless right that is part of the job knowing that what we ask for is sometimes going to get the thumbs down Mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit within the the overall structure if something goes bad from that after i've given that presentation and then it said Richard, you should have done something about that. Then we got a totally, yeah, we have a totally different set of conversations.
0: Absolutely. Well, in a short answer, would you want to be a CISO again with how the role has evolved over the last couple of years? Would you ever go back to that C-suite? Well, not so C-suite.
1: Well. <laughs> I, I think that it bifurcates bifurcate that. Uh, for me, short answer is, is I'm a functional CISO today. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the responsibility for operational product security at Traceable. Um, I love it um, because uh, most of my focus is really around uh, how do we harden our capabilities, not necessarily how are we dealing with, you know, as I saw recently in the news for Chase, 45 billion attacks a day. Like that is a different world. Um, and I would say that um, my interest in going to returning to a corporate CISO world is slim and none and slim left town. Um, I I love all of my uh, CISO colleagues and CSO colleagues that are out there doing it. Um, I, I've either reached an age in my career where I'm not interested in being bothered um, with the nuisances that come with that job anymore, um, or I, I feel like um, my ability to create change uh, across m- more than one company, across hundreds of companies, across you know dozens of nations, uh, I, am I'm, I'm more capable of doing that in my kind of role today than I would be in doing it for one company in, in, in a corporate CISO role, uh, as a job anymore. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's really where I kind of land, not afraid of it. Don't have any problems with it. You know, it's, you know, been through that fire and, and loved it, loved up my experiences, but, um, you know, it has nothing to do with threats or risk or exploit or attack, uh, concerns that I have it has more to do with where I want to be in my personal life now um, and it's not it's not dealing with um,
0: the consequences of a massive breach somewhere
1: mm-hmm. and a CISO
0: a corporate CISO might not be able to get away with dressing as Ricky Bobby either so. <laughs> probably you, you probably like not that. a well, corporate
1: CISO would barely be able to get past legal to be able to go to the event to begin with so
0: exactly well Richard thank you so much for coming on really enjoyed the conversation and uh yeah it's been a pleasure
1: truly enjoyed it Uh, and uh you know happy to do it again if uh if
0: if opportunities and events permit so absolutely we hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Cyberbytes the podcast please give it a thumbs up subscribe and tell your friends if you want to explore being a guest or how Aspiron Search can help you build high-performing security and go-to-market teams, then get in touch on LinkedIn or info at AspironSearch.com.